What if I told you that you can support your blood pressure and healthy CoQ10 levels with two chews a day? The new Super Beats Heart Chews Advanced is now supercharged with CoQ10. That's like getting CoQ10 for free. Our powerful blend of beetroot, grapeseed extract, and CoQ10 supports your cardiovascular health. Visit RadioBeats.com and find out how you can get a free 30-day supply on bundles and save 15% with the promo code DEAL. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from The Washington Post. Washington Post, this is Wesley. It's Lori Aritani over at The Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 27th. Today, a ruling that could shape the future of the opioid crisis. Jeffrey Epstein's accusers speak in court. And why some e-scooters carry a message in Braille. The opioid crisis is an imminent danger and menace to Oklahomans. So this is a landmark. The defendants, Janssen and Johnson & Johnson's, misleading marketing and promotion of opioids created a nuisance as defined by 50 OS Section 1, including a finding that those actions compromise the health and safety of thousands of Oklahomans. It's the first time that a judge has ever held a drug company responsible for the opioid epidemic. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. He was in the courtroom in Oklahoma yesterday when a judge ruled that Johnson & Johnson will have to pay $572 million for its role in the opioid crisis. He ruled that Johnson & Johnson took part in a campaign of misinformation and deception that persuaded doctors and opioid consumers that these drugs were less addictive than they really were and more helpful than they really were. He ruled that Johnson & Johnson, because it owned two companies for a while that produced the active ingredients for opioids and sold them to other companies, which then turned them into drugs, was responsible. All of this despite the fact that Johnson & Johnson's own drugs account for just about 1% of the opioids, prescription opioids consumed in Oklahoma. So their argument is that they can't have played such a major role in the opioid epidemic, but this judge found otherwise. Yes, that was one of their arguments. They made several, but yes, that that's the key right there. They're saying, how can we be held culpable and asked to pay $572 million to clean this up if our drugs were only uh, 1% of the opioids in Oklahoma? That is certainly one of the things that they will bring up on appeal. So this $572 million that Johnson & Johnson has been ordered to pay, where is that money going? Well, first off, we have to remember that no one's going to see that money probably for years. If Johnson & Johnson does carry through on its promise to appeal, they'll go up to the Oklahoma Supreme Court first, and that could take a couple of years. And if they lost there, they could go to the U.S. Supreme Court, and that could take another couple of years. Typically, the payment of the money would be stayed while that occurs. If by some miracle they turned around tomorrow and wrote a check, either for 572 or 
something less than that. It would be going to treatment. It would be going to prevention, education, law enforcement, emergency services. There are babies born dependent on opioids who need all kinds of care. There are children in foster care whose parents are unable to take care of them, and so the state is taking care of them. All of those places would get some of the money. And for the attorneys for the state of Oklahoma, did did they feel like this $572 million was what they were looking for, that it's enough to take care of a lot of the problems that the state is seeing? So this is probably the most interesting thing that happened yesterday. The state of Oklahoma asked for $17.5 billion over 30 years. So if you look at $572 million, uh, it's a much smaller amount. Now, what Judge Bachman said was, I can tell that for the first year, it's going to cost $572 million to take care of this crisis. What the state did not present me with sufficient evidence to decide is what happens after that. I just can't tell. So the number is much smaller than what the state asked for, but it's a one-year number. Of course, the opioid epidemic is not going to be abated in one year. It's going to take decades. And what what seems really interesting about this is the fact that this is just one of many legal cases that are starting to come up against drug companies, blaming them and holding them responsible for the opioid crisis. So how does this ruling in Oklahoma affect what we might be seeing in these other legal cases against other drug companies around the country? So we've got two sets of cases going forward. We've got another 40-some-odd states that are suing any number of drug companies, just like Oklahoma. And then we have cities, counties, Native American tribes, hospitals, other groups, numbering somewhere around 2,000 plaintiffs. And they are all consolidated in a federal case in Cleveland. So let's put that aside for a second. Looking at the state cases, you would expect, okay, Oklahoma won using these theories to the extent that that is possible under each state's law, you would expect that state to adopt as much of the strategy that Oklahoma used as possible, because after all, it's a winning strategy, at least here. However, we did have a case in North Dakota in May where the judge threw out a similar claim against Purdue and said, that doesn't work here. So while this is a landmark, it's subject to the vagaries of different states, different laws, different defendants uh, on the state level. Now, I will say that if a judge is willing to find a company liable and they only produce 1% of the drugs consumed in a state, you might be encouraged by that because if you're suing Mallinckrodt, if you're suing Purdue, if you're suing any of the larger manufacturers, you might be thinking to yourself today, boy, Johnson & Johnson was held liable, and they only produced 1% of the drugs. I've got a guy here who produced 20 or 30% of the drugs, or a company that distributed 20 or 30% of the drugs. Moving over to the federal lawsuit, it's much less certain. Federal cases are different from state cases, uh, and those are cities and counties rather than states. So I think we should be cautious uh, in the amount of influence we attribute uh, to the federal cases. So for the lawyers who were fighting on behalf of the state of Oklahoma, what was the strategy or the legal argument that they were making that ended up being successful? So Oklahoma had one claim and one claim only. They claimed that the drug companies, and eventually it just became Johnson & Johnson as they settled with a couple of others, that the drug companies created a public nuisance in the state of Oklahoma that affected the health and well-being of every resident of the state. 
Public nuisance law is generally used for property problems. If I am flooding your backyard with my sprinkler system, if a polluter is polluting a river, if a brothel is creating a nuisance on the street and and we want it shut down, you go to the court and you claim that it's a public nuisance and the remedy is that the court makes you stop. They make me stop flooding your backyard. They close down the brothel. They make the polluters stop pouring stuff into the river. The lawyers here took a very novel approach to public nuisance law. It may be unprecedented, in which they said, because public nuisance covers the health and well-being of the residents of the state of Oklahoma, we are claiming that Johnson & Johnson violated the public nuisance law because they affected the health of everyone here. Now, Oklahoma has a broad public nuisance law. Many other states and cities and counties also have public nuisance laws, but they vary. So it's not entirely certain whether that argument would work in other places, but it worked here. When you look at the ruling from this case and the legal arguments that are being made in these other cases against drug companies that are being accused of fueling the opioid crisis, what do you think is the big question that's being asked here or the big question that's being thought about here in terms of culpability? So anybody who even opens their eyes or reads the newspaper or watches television knows that we had a prescription opioid epidemic in this country for many years, and it still continues today. It it may be a little bit on the wane, but it happened, and many thousands, tens of thousands of people died. The question is, can you prove to the legal satisfaction of either a judge or a jury that opioid manufacturers caused it, that opioid distributors caused it, that the large retail chains that sold the drugs caused it, and that they should be helping pay to clean it up. That's the rub. There's really no doubt about the epidemic. There are 200,000-plus people dead from these pills and other dosage forms. The question is, who do we blame? Did the companies help stoke this with all this misinformation and and showering these drugs down on states and oversupplying them to the point that there were enough to head out to the black market by the hundreds of millions? Or was that not their responsibility? Should the doctors have stopped this? Should the drugstores have stopped this? That's what's going on right now. Lenny Bernstein covers health and medicine for The Post. There are a lot of very angry and frustrated women who feel that they were victimized once and they never got their real day in court to face the man they accuse of stealing their childhood from them. That's Carol Lenig. I'm an investigative reporter at The Washington Post. 
In federal court in New York on Tuesday, a judge began the process of dropping charges against Jeffrey Epstein, the multimillionaire who'd been accused of sex trafficking. Epstein died in federal prison earlier this month in what authorities describe as a suicide. But even though the case against him is now largely finished, there are still women who want to speak publicly about the crimes that they say they experienced. A federal judge in New York had invited people who are victims of Jeffrey Epstein to come forward and to share with the court their stories. And so this was an attempt to give them some semblance of a day in court or a day for some sort of justice. What did some of these alleged victims say? It was pretty heartbreaking. One woman described being forcibly and violently raped by Jeffrey Epstein when she was 14. She said she felt that It took her a long time to come forward to tell people what had happened to her. And I think the way she put it was every way that he could win, Jeffrey Epstein won. Mm -hmm. Meaning he won in fighting off her claims. He won a plea agreement that avoided any real jail time. And now he won again when charged with serious violations in New York by apparently killing himself. So part of the reason for this hearing today was to allow these victims to have an opportunity to talk. But also it was about the legal case against Epstein. I mean, is there anything else happening with that? Absolutely. Not only was the judge offering people, women who were victimized, um, to come forward and share their stories, to stand up and, and essentially accuse a now dead man, but also to kind of play a little bit of cleanup with this case. The charges against Epstein will inevitably be dropped. That's one of the first things that this court hearing was supposed to begin to establish. The Justice Department, in the form of prosecutors in New York, have argued that they will continue this investigation by trying to prosecute the enablers, the people who were a ring of friends and advocates around Epstein who helped bring women into his life on an hourly basis almost. Because the charges against him were not only sex trafficking, but also conspiracy to commit sex trafficking, which would assume that there were other people involved in that conspiracy. Absolutely. You can't have a conspiracy without two things, colleagues or co-conspirators, and a kind of a fraud where you are hiding this from others. You know, there's been a lot of conversation about some of the women who were alleged sort of pimps for Epstein, Ghislaine Maxwell, Sarah Kellen, These folks are definitely under the microscope of investigators. The big question is, are they going to be charged? And that's not clear at this time. What about the investigation into Epstein's death? What have we heard about how that is going? That's why today was such a riveting moment in court, because there were so many things going on. You know, as you've highlighted, the women coming forward, being able to tell their story, the wrapping up of the case, what's going to happen with the investigation of a sex trafficking ring that appeared to provide women to Jeffrey Epstein three times a day. The third piece was defense lawyers for Epstein and his family saying, There's a lot of mystery about how he died. Nobody, no matter what they're charged with, no matter what heinous crime they may be guilty of, should die in jail in the way that he did. And they want an independent investigation. There were three parts of that. One, we don't entirely trust with certainty the medical examiner's conclusion that Epstein killed himself, that there's still questions for them. That doesn't mean they don't believe it happened. They just have questions. The second part was, 
what in the world was going on in this federally run jail, run by the Justice Department, that allowed for all of these protocols to be violated. Nobody checking on Epstein in the middle of the night as required. Uh, Two people allegedly falling asleep. Two people under investigation who were officers in the jail accused of uh, falsifying logs. And then finally, now as we broke this story, the defense attorneys are demanding to know what is going on with these unusable, unreadable tapes that were supposed to be a critical piece of evidence outside the cell of Epstein. This was surveillance footage that investigators had assumed would be available to them to see what was going on in the moments and hours before Epstein's death, but now they're apparently not able to be used. Was the the camera broken? Do we know exactly what happened there? It's such a good question, and we don't know with specificity because the Department of Justice and the Bureau of Prisons refused to discuss it with us but uh, and refused to comment. But what we know thus far is that at least one camera, we don't know how many, but at least one camera that was positioned directly outside of his cell and and ostensibly could have shown that no one entered his room or that someone did enter his room, more likely no one entered his room, uh, is... is a a black hole. Hmm. There is other footage that is available, but we don't know yet what that was trained on and how valuable it is in terms of establishing what happened the night that Epstein died. Another mystery here actually is that we don't know whether or not this problem with the taping was just the night of Epstein's death or had been going on for a long time in a beleaguered and, uh, you know, technologically security challenged facility. So what do we expect will happen next, both in the investigation into the circumstances of Epstein's death, but also in this continuing uh, criminal case against the potential people who conspired with Jeffrey Epstein? I think what you can expect is um, on both of those very distinct inquiries, the judge has been asked by the defense lawyers to help authorize an independent investigation The defense attorneys are demanding access to those copies of tapes, which you could presume the FBI is trying to figure out if they can recover some imagery. We don't know very much about that. So the judge will make some sort of determination about that independent investigation, and it will be litigious, I would guess. On the investigation of the sex trafficking ring, We report on that the way we report and watch all criminal investigations, which is who gets subpoenaed for records, whose testimony is sought. Are there going to be people who are part of this ring who feel some pressure brought to bear by the federal government and fear for their own criminal liability and decide to cooperate in plea agreements or cooperation agreements and then start to dime out the rest of the ring if to the degree it exists? Carol Lenig is a national investigative reporter for The Post.
And now one more thing about the dockless electric scooters that have become incredibly popular in cities around the country. My name is Luz Lasso, and I cover transportation here at The Washington Post. Luz kept getting these messages from readers about something that they've noticed while riding the scooters. Stuck on the handlebar of the scooter, right below the grips, is a message in Braille. We got all these emails about these Braille messages on the scooters. People saying, why why in the world will a blind person want to have anything to do with a scooter? And it was a, kind of a mystery, right? And we decided we wanted to solve the mystery. Luz reached out to several of the scooter companies, and she also reached out to local governments. And she found out that the message was actually contact information. Such as the name of the company, email, phone number. And that contact information is not for blind people who may want to ride the scooters. It's for blind people who might trip over the scooters. No, they're not riding these things. But just like you and I, when we're walking on the street, we encounter these scooters. There's people who have low vision or who are blind who are also navigating through our sidewalks and who are bumping into these devices. And so someone who's blind who may trip over them might want to report that incident and just call the company and say, hey, you know, I trip over your scooter, (laughs) do something about it. Yeah, we hear about it a lot, actually. Not just people with disabilities, but the general public encounter these scooters just about anywhere, on sidewalks, entrances to buildings, near bus stops. And and there's been incidents that, you know, people just trip over them. I also talked to some of the advocacy groups, some leaders in the disability community. My name is Sean Calloway. I am the president of the National Federation of the Blind of the District of Columbia. And so he said, well, the scooters have not been a friend to the blind community. This is not something that's um, an isolated incident where this is only one or two times. This has happened multiple times. People often just leave these scooters in the middle of the the sidewalk or or any other type of walkway. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so he said... They're dangerous. They become a hazard to, you know, anybody else just trying to navigate the, the sidewalk system. When it comes to individuals with disabilities, it's always a, a sort of an afterthought. I'm sure when these scooters, the development of these doctor scooters came up, the last thing people were thinking about were individuals with disabilities having to walk <laughs> near where a scooter may be placed. These scooters, people really liked them. They became almost instantly very popular. And all of a sudden, you know, they went from being in a few cities to being in uh, dozens of cities across the U.S. and now across the world. It's not just the millennials or the young people using them. It's, you know, you see all kinds of people, ages, people travel to and from communities, neighborhoods that are not served by public transportation. So it's providing an opportunity, a transportation option for a lot of people. At the same time, you know, it's created tension in in many cities because it's been a, a new barrier that people with low vision or who are blind or who are traveling in a wheelchair have had to deal with. 
the last group of people that, that individuals are thinking about are, are people with disabilities and sort of transportation because there is an assumption that people with disabilities are sitting in a house, you know, blind people don't travel, they don't walk around with their white canes. So you're not going to have the conversation about how the expansion of transportation is going to affect people with disabilities unless people with disabilities stand up and say, okay, we are here and this is going on. Luz Lazo covers transportation for The Washington Post. That's it for today's episode of Post Reports. Thanks for listening. We love seeing feedback about the show on Twitter. Like one tweet from a listener who was initially a little bit skeptical when she heard we were doing a segment on the K-pop group BTS on Friday's episode. But after listening, she tweeted in all caps, they got a woman of color to report on it and also mentioned the marginalization of other people of color acts, so I'm happy. Glad we could make you happy at Honeyed Yoon. Share your comments on social media and be sure to use the hashtag post reports to make sure that we see them. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. <laughs>